All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Romans chapter one. If you are grabbing one of the pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 939. Um, I tried to find somebody who would be willing to read this morning's text from the stage, and everybody turned me down when they found out what it was, so I'm going to read it. (laughs) Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things." Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Welcome to church. If this is your first week here, uh, it's like probably a splash of cold water in the face. Nothing like kicking off a sermon with Romans 1. Um, You may have actually noticed in Romans 1 as we read that aloud that there was a particularly sticky paragraph right in the middle of the passage in verses 26 and 27. And that that passage actually speaks to a very complex theological conversation that we are not going to touch on in today's sermon. It's not the main point of what we're preaching about today. But if you want to go deeper in that, Pastor Jace would love to have a cup of coffee with you (laughs) and talk it through in detail. Now, last week, uh, Jace kicked us off in our Lent sermon series that we are calling the Vandalism of Shalom, which is language from this brilliant book by Cornelius Plantinga Jr. It's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a Breviary of Sin. And um, a few months ago, Jace and I, we were talking about this book. We both read it. We were really enjoying it. And we felt like, you know what? Why don't we do an entire sermon series during Lent where we just talk about the issue of sin? So we are taking the next few weeks leading up to to Easter to examine 
what sin is. Now, we all come from very different backgrounds and cultural sort of understandings about sin. For some, maybe you grew up in a context where it was like a really religious home, very conservative and rules-based. And so every time we say the word sin, something in you becomes like, like a little bit of shame or guilt or something, a tinge of something just rises to the surface. And for others, sin was, maybe grew up in a context where sin was only referenced in as much as it allowed for us to be able to talk about grace, 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 grace. And sin, you know, that's like a thing that's behind you. Grace is the real thing that matters now. Maybe if you're in my generation and if you grew up in sort of like a youth group culture, the idea of sin might be heavily connected to kind of a, a, a weird purity culture where the only real sin that you were in danger of doing was going to parties and making out with your girlfriend or looking at pornography or something. Um, or maybe when you just hear the word sin, it feels to you like an antiquated idea that's dogmatic or judgmental and from an ancient time. We, and we live in a time where sin is not recognized as a real Problem. The very cons- the very word sin just feels so old-fashioned. And the closest that we'll come to referencing the idea of sin is only when we talk about it as something societal or systemic. But personal? Nah, you do you. I'm sure that you're doing your best. Dallas Willard writes this. He says, Our social and psychological sciences stand helpless before the terrible things done by human beings. But the warped nature of the human will, the reality of sin, is something we are not allowed to admit into serious discussion. We are like the farmers who diligently plant crops but can't admit the existence of weeds and insects and can only think to pour on more fertilizer. Sin? Who wants to talk about sin? And why bring up wrath? In our culture, we don't talk about it. We don't even believe it. Even in the church, we would rather use a million euphemisms besides sin to describe what's gone wrong with us. We'll say things like it's a slip-up or a mistake or a disorder or a disease or an addiction or a shadow side. And when we refuse to acknowledge sin for what it is, we end up prescribing the wrong antidote for our personal and societal pains. Fleming Rutledge says it like this. She says... It is only by endeavoring to look sin straight in the face that we are able to understand grace. And that's what this whole series is leading up to. We are spending seven weeks leading up to Easter because before we can get to the victory of the empty tomb, we have to go on a journey through the reality of the very real suffering and sin and brokenness of our world. Sin is the opposite of God's original design for his creation. Sin is to will what is discordant with the wholeness and perfection of God's design. Sin is to will what is against God's will. Pastor Susie Silk says, Sin, in short, could be quickly defined as anything less than God's ideal. Any action or thought that does not reflect God's goodness and extend his goodness into the world, but instead undermines God and his good purpose for everything and everyone he created. Sin is anti-shalom. And so why are we spending seven weeks talking about sin? Because we kind of have to. As we live in a world that increasingly denies sin's existence or even the existence of personal evil, the church must be clear about what has gone wrong in the world and what has gone wrong 
in us. So we're gonna do a little bit of review from last week. If you have your Bible open up to Genesis chapter one, we're gonna start in the beginning. In Genesis chapter one, verse one, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. So at the beginning of, of the story, at the very page one of the Bible, what we see is that God's spirit was hovering over this empty, dark, formless sort of void that was watery and chaotic. And then he, as he's hovering over this, this weird, empty, formless thing that was watery, he began to speak order and beauty over it and sort of took this, this, this chaotic thing and gave it beauty. And after each act of creation, God looks out over what he did and he called it good. Yeah, he called it, the word is tov. He said that it was good. And at the end of his creating process, he then, as sort of the culmination of everything that he did after seven days of, of creation, he puts his image, image bearer in a perfect garden, a place called Eden, and he gives his humans this mandate. He says, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was very tov. It was very good. And so God looks out over all of his creation and he sees this picture of what the Bible calls shalom, complete, beautiful. In the book that we are basing much of the series off of, Cornelius Plantinga describes shalom like this. He says that it is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be the way things ought to be. And then God looks at his creation. He looks at his people, his human beings, the image bearers, and, he, and the mandate that he gives them is to do the same exact thing that he did in Genesis chapter one, to go out into sort of the wild world beyond the edges of this garden and to make beauty, to bring order, to sort of take the shalom of God and spread it out into the wild world. So he calls us to have babies and to make families and to build civilizations. He calls us to cultivate and care for creation, to plant gardens, to make art and music, to design buildings. He calls us to, to uh, express sort of a, 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 a sub-government under God where justice and righteousness is, is executed in the world. We're called to prepare delicious foods and to plant vineyards and to make good wine and to celebrate God's goodness at work in one another. Essentially, ruling over creation in relationship with God is what he calls very good. But how did it go? Not so great. In Genesis 3, the humans were tempted and manipulated by a serpent with this lie that you don't need God, you can be your own God. 
You don't need to follow his rules. You alone can determine your own destiny. And in taking the forbidden fruit, humans sin against God, seeking to define good and evil for themselves. And the result of this sin is the undoing of this beautiful creation that God gave us. Sin is anti-creation. It's anti-shalom. What was once very good has been corrupted. And this is what we are talking about this morning. Sin is the corrupting and perverting of everything. So humans, in our corrupted state, after, being, after sinning, and we're, we're sort of like twisted out of the goodness that God created us to be, we still go out and we do the mandate that he gave us. We still go and we spread out, we build civilizations, but we build these civilizations upon injustice and systemic oppression, things like racism at the base. We still have babies and we start families, but these families are full of all kinds of painful dynamics affected by infidelity or abandonment or jealousy or selfishness. We still plant gardens and grow food and have food systems to be able to feed all the people, and yet there is inequity in how that food is distributed. We still, we're, instead of caring for creation, we're planting gardens that are more of monocultures or slashing rainforests for cattle grazing. Rather, rather than um, celebrating God's goodness in other people, we're full of jealousy and comparison and, and Facebook and Instagram making everything a whole lot worse. And then we worship celebrities one minute only to cancel them the next. We still make music, but now we make country music. <laughs> Plantinga says it this way, the story of the fall tells us that sin corrupts. Like some devastating twister, corruption both explodes and implodes creation, pushing it back toward the formless void from which it came. And so what the Bible teaches is that every one of us has been defiled by sin. We have been corrupted, and this thing is in us. We still bear the image of God, but, it, but this image has been perverted into something less than what it was intended to be. You see, sin has been baked into our humanity. It's not that we've just become dirty. It's that the defilement is actually in us. Like, think of a cake. You know, it's not that dirt and grime and dog poop has been smeared onto the cake and we just need to clean it up. No, the image that we're seeing is that this grime and dirt and ugliness has been baked in, and no matter how much you attempt to clean it up, the very nature of the cake has been changed. And that is what the corruption of sin has done to all of us. The integrity of our humanity has been affected. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. A disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. By our very nature, we were children of wrath. He says that we are spiritually dead in our sin, that the nature of our humanity has been corrupted, and now what we deserve is the wrath of God. Yikes! Wrath? Like, we're going to wrath now. Okay, might as well. 
And the wrath of God that is being spoken of here in Ephesians chapter 2 is a very specific kind of wrath. The word that's used in verse 3 is the word orge. And it speaks not of God crushing sinners or pouring out sickness and calamity to punish people. And it's not about eternal judgment or hell. The word orge here speaks of God's abandoning wrath. It's God removing his restraint. It's a picture of a parent with a rebellious youth who is hell-bent on doing whatever they want and the parent finally stepping back and saying, you know what, fine, your will be done. Just go for it. And honestly, this is a terrifying wrath, giving us over to our own self-destruction. In 2 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul writes about how God is like a restrainer Like we would go even further in our sin if it wasn't for the fact that God sort of holds us in check. This is what happens when spiritually dead, corrupted people live for themselves. In God's passive wrath, he turns us over to our own corruption. And that's what Romans chapter one is talking about when we we read it at the very beginning. Paul says that the corrupting power of our sin blinds us to God's glory. That before a word of scripture was ever written, that there was, there was already a revelation of God's goodness that was seen in creation. But because of our corruption, we are blinded to being able to see God revealed in our creation. And then next he says that corruption leads us into futile thinking. He says that our foolish hearts are darkened and we exchange wisdom for folly and we worship what's created rather than worshiping the creator. Then he says that we succumb to degrading, exi- degrading desires. Again, passive wrath. He gives us over to our sinful desires so we pervert the good gifts of pleasure and sexuality into something less and broken. And then Paul calls out our shameful lusts. And then he speaks of our depraved mind, one that delights in evil and celebrates what is marred and broken. And then at the very end in chapter two, he says that we are so corrupted by our sin that in the face of all of this stuff, we then pass judgment on each other, not recognizing that we ourselves are just as guilty as those we pass judgment on. That's how twisted Paul says that we are. We are corrupted. You see, we are victims of this anti-shalom. It is painful to live in a world that is broken apart by sin. It is, we are grieved by what we see all around us, by what we see on the news happening in Ukraine. When I'm texting my friend Jed, who is trying to rush 40 people across borders, trying to get them safely to, to, to Germany um, in the face of war. We are, we are victims of a very painful and broken world. We are victims of the the consequences of sickness, of broken families, of all kinds of evil that has been committed against us. But the Bible makes it clear that we are also all participants in the vandalizing of shalom. And a couple of chapters later, the Apostle Paul writes that there is not one righteous, not even one of us. We are all guilty. You see, guilt says, I've done something wrong. And shame says there is something wrong with me. And the Bible clearly says that both of those things are true. The result of our sin is that we are broken and we can feel it. And from the earliest chapters of Genesis all the way through to the very end of the book, God says that the result of our corruption is death. That death is not just a consequence or a punishment for sin. It is the natural end of sin's corrupting power at work within us. Sin is like a cancer. 
Plantinga calls it spiritual AIDS. It's a spiritual autoimmune disorder that is slowly killing us. And as we are given over to sin, we become less and less human until we die. And so because we have been corrupted by sin, the hope that we have is not simply that we can figure out a way to be less corrupted. The only thing that we can hope for is to be made totally new. All right, how are we doing? You guys still with me? Okay. Uh, Let's just like take a breath right now. It's pretty heavy. Which brings us finally back to Ephesians chapter two. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture. He says, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but God. Gosh, that's become one of my favorite phrases in the, in the Bible, but God. Look at verse four. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You see, wrath was the logical end of the story, but it was not the end of God's story. It may be what we deserved. It may be what we all experience outside of Christ, but God doesn't leave us there. God hasn't left us this way because that is not what God is like. You see, Though we may have been corrupted, God is uncorrupted and he is compelled by love and mercy. And no matter what, that is who he is. He can't help himself but being loving and merciful. Love and mercy. Again and again in the face of human failure, God persists in lavishing his love on people. And lots of us, for one reason or another, maybe because of a theological upbringing, maybe the parenting that you received, maybe words that have been spoken over you, many of us believe that God's default setting towards us is one of disappointment, anger, and frustration, or maybe at least just sort of a distant aloofness, like, we'll see what happens with you. But see, that is not who Jesus is. He is not perpetually disappointed. It is profound that verse four comes on the heels of calling us children of wrath, that while we were corrupted, enslaved to the world, enslaved to Satan, enslaved to ourselves, God overflows with love. And God is rich in mercy. Like he never runs out. He never gets sick of extending mercy to us. And God invites us to respond to this gift of love and mercy with one thing. He he calls us to respond to this gift with repentance. Now, here is another word that I think has been twisted over time. For some of us, the word repentance feels automatically shaming. You just hear me say, repent, sinner, get right with the Lord. But the word repent is simply inviting us to turn around and go back the other direction, It's walking away from this thing that is bent on your destruction and instead walking back towards life, back towards the perfect shalom of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that if you board the wrong train, it is no use running along the corridor in the other direction. That repentance means actually just like getting off the train and going the other way. And repentance is neither diminishing sin nor is it a fixation on our sin. You see, some of us, in attempting to be clean from the sin that corrupts and defiles us, we become obsessed with it. 
and we give it more power in our lives than the grace of God. We live as if the cross was insufficient to pay our debt, and we still have some interest to be able to pay off. And so some of us in, in this fear and concern, like, man, I just want to be free. I need to be free from the defilement of my sin. We get so obsessed with it. And the irony is that we think that we are living out repentance, but really what we are doing is we're still going the wrong direction. We're still focused on the thing that breaks us and defiles us. And the invitation from God is not that we, f- that we focus on it and fix it. The invitation is just leave that there and come to me. It's what we see, it's what we see in this, the famous story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, where a young man, he takes his inheritance from the father, goes off to a faraway land, just like rejects and renounces his family, goes off to a faraway land and squanders everything. And everything that he was pursuing led further and further and further to his destruction. And when he came to the end of himself and thought, at the very least, I can go home and be a servant to my father. At the very least, maybe I can just get some food at his house by being his servant. Instead, he reluctantly walks back to the father's house. And, and it says that as he's walking to the father's house, he's reciting sort of his, his speech that he's going to give his father for all the reasons why he was wrong and he's sorry and that he should be taken back. And what we see in that is that while he was still a long way off, the father runs to the son. And before the son has a chance to be able to explain himself, the father embraces him and throws a robe over his back and puts a ring on his finger and says, at last my son is home. And that's the image that Jesus gives us of what repentance looks like. It's not coming back and fixating on all of the ways that you squandered. It's just coming back home. And that is the invitation to all of us. And as we repent and we turn from our sin, we are made new. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The broken humanity that we all carry is exchanged for a new humanity. Our our nature is restored. Yes, we will still struggle with what the Bible calls the old man, but but it is no longer our identity. We are not defined any longer by our corruption. We are defined by God's grace. And then in in Ephesians 2, in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through faith. By grace through faith, not by faith through grace. And it's really important that we get the order right. This matters because understanding the order of grace and faith determines the kind of Christian you will become. If you understand that faith determines your grace, you will be prone to striving. You will be prone to working to create the conditions of grace, working to clean up yourself, your own corruption and defilement. But what we see here is that grace comes first. Grace creates the conditions for our faith. That's what God does for us. He creates the conditions for belief. Grace gives us the assurance that God, who began his work in us, is the one who will complete it. That God is the one who draws us into saving faith and out of our sin. Faith is not something that you can muster up on your own. Your problem of corruption can never be solved by you. It is a gift. 
And then from that, we are called to mirror God to the rest of the world around us. The way that God loved us is the way that we are called to then love others and to love the world. And so look at what Jesus did for you, showering you with love and mercy while you were dead. How would God call his people to reflect his mercy and his love to the world that we live in, a a world that is defined by tribalism and division? Maybe, just maybe, salvation comes by grace. Maybe the church must be rich in mercy and overflowing with love. Maybe this is what Christ did for us and we need to do for each other. And as new creations, we are recommissioned to go out into the world and to spread the shalom of God everywhere. The same mandate that was given to us all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 is re-given to us as new creations to go out and to spread the beauty of God everywhere we go. This is what Jesus calls the kingdom And this informs how we live in the world. This informs our relationships with each other. That as God has loved us, so we are to love one another. God extends grace rather than judgment, and that is to become our new default setting. Imagine being this kind of husband or wife, a marriage of grace instead of judgment, even when they don't load the dishwasher the way you want them to load it. Imagine being this kind of neighbor. Imagine being this kind of friend. Imagine this kind of grace-filled environment in your workplace. Imagine this in your parenting. Maybe our primary job as parents is to model the sacrificial grace of God. Maybe we are to reflect God who is abounding in love and rich in mercy. You see, this is what we were designed for to be the workmanship of God, to display God's mercy and power to save. This is why you were born. This is your purpose, to be God's representatives in this time and place. Which brings us finally to verse 10 in Ephesians 2. He says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That God gives us a new, uncorrupted life, and this new life propels us to go and spread the life of God, the shalom of God's kingdom everywhere. Paul calls us God's workmanship, which is the Greek word poema. It means creation or artwork. In fact, it's where we get the word poem from. And Paul does not use this word to refer to sort of material creation or to even the rest of humanity. It's referring to specifically God's handiwork of new creation in our lives, that saved sinners are God's masterpiece. God is displaying his glorious grace through us. As a church family, we are called to be sort of a gallery of God's redemption on display for the rest of the world. Each one of us are his handiwork. We are individually like paintings reflecting the love and mercy of God. Each one of us is a story of God's work. You see, God has met us, met each one of us in various states of our sin, various states of our corruption, in addictions and hangups. And he's lavished his varying grace and mercy and Uh, and salvation on us to show the multifaceted work of God's salvation in the world. Your life is a masterpiece of God's mercy. You see, God isn't trying to kill your, your true self. He's trying to release the true self he created you to be. 
He's trying to undo all of the forces and entanglements that have hindered you from becoming who you were designed to be in Christ. His heart is to recreate us and then to release us to go and be his image in the world. So what was at one point the truest thing about us, that things have gone wrong and they ought not, the way they ought not to be, that in his grace, God is changing us, making us new and sending us out to be his trophies in the world. Amen? Let's stand. Next week, we are going to have the privilege of having my good friend Rose uh, Sweatman. She's going to be joining us to share with us, um, continuing our series. You don't want to miss it. Um, but I want to encourage you. I know that the idea of spending seven weeks talking about sin and corruption and defilement and evil and all of those things is like not the, the glass of cold water that you might be coming in here looking for. But I want to encourage you guys, like, let's press into these issues because on the other side of this is grace and mercy. It's all of God's goodness being lavished on us as we face the reality of our own brokenness.